0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Lift off. We have a liftoff.
1: off. Hello and welcome to the Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast. I'm your host Dan French. Thanks for listening. The Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast is recorded before a live participatory audience. Plug into the Renaissance, connect with pros, and participate in the next episode live on our website at virginiasolarsummit.com slash livestream. The Virginia Solar Summit livestream is brought to you by Dominion Energy, leveraging innovation for a clean energy future. Hashtag speak louder. Learn more at dominionenergy.com. As well as Mission Disposal, the essential site services company specializing in day-to-day supply and sanitation needs during solar and commercial construction. Learn more at missiondisposal.com. On today's episode, Dr. Brian Anderson, recently appointed by President Biden to lead the new interagency working group on coal and power plant communities and economic revitalization. The IWG is leveraging the combined might of 12 agencies of federal government and billions of dollars. Its hugely important mission is to be a catalyst and a resource for legacy energy communities to pivot to a new abundant future powered by renewable energy. I want to get right to our featured uh, guest today, Dr. Anderson. We're really le- lucky to have him. He's a busy guy. They've uh, they've taken a whole government approach, bringing together a dozen different federal agencies and organizations, uh, leveraging their combined might and combined expertise. All those big brains pushing on this big revitalization question. That's the pathway to the renaissance. Is through revitalization, I believe, of our legacy assets. We're gonna get to that, but let me introduce uh, Dr. Anderson. He's the director of the National Energy Technology Laboratory, NETL, uh, within the Department of Energy. In this capacity, he manages the complete NETL complex, which includes a lot of things, delivery and execution of the broader laboratory's mission. Um, And he leads uh, NETL's national programs, both in fossil energy and other DOE mission areas, uh, working with industry universities and other national laboratories he began his career actually at the University of West Virginia. In 2006, he was an assistant professor in the Department of Chemical and Biomedical Engineering, so he's a real doctor. Uh, He knows this stuff through and through. And throughout his tenure at uh, uh, WVU, he became uh, recognized for his work in science and a subject matter uh, expert in natural gas. We actually crossed paths professionally, Uh, but I'll get to that later in the show. In 2014, importantly, he founded and built the WVU Energy Institute, which is the largest energy collaborative and research organization at the university, focusing on advanced technology through research, development, and demonstration within the energy industry. But this year, and uh, most germane to our conversation today on top of all his experience and accomplishments professionally. President Biden named him the executive director of the new interagency working group on coal and power plant communities and economic revitalization. And in this role, Uh, Dr. Anderson is strategically leveraging the National Laboratories resources and the the other 12 agencies I mentioned, as well as their expertise to ensure the shift to a clean energy economy that creates good paying union jobs spurs economic revitalization remediates environmental degradation and supports energy workers in coal, oil and gas and power plant communities, who we know have heard so much so with that. uh, I think I've I've given you a, a really big introduction, Dr. Anderson. But uh, but we know in this space we've got a lot of work to do here. We've got a lot of solar to build. We have a half a billion amend half a million, abandoned mines in this country. A million brownfields. Um, there's a lot lot of work to do as well as solar to to build. Um, welcome to the show.
0: Well, Dan, thanks so much for having me, and thanks for the folks who've joined us today. Uh, it, it's really exciting for me to be asked to uh, help lead this interagency working group and to bring NETL's expertise to bear. You know, NETL is the, the national laboratory. We've, we've been around since 19, 1910, 111 years. And and in 1910, what, what's little known is in 1910, we were founded uh, after a spate of mine explosions in 1908. And, and so the government asked to uh, stand up a laboratory to try to reduce the risk um, to miners in, in subsurface mining operations. And so for 111 years, our mission has evolved and here we are now full circle going back into the mining and uh, coal and power plant communities and, and trying to make sure that uh, those communities and the workers have a uh, have a brighter future. Sorry to use your sol- a solar pun on you.
1: Oh, we love puns, that's okay. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's kind of a re of, of America's energy uh, and industrial legacy. But can we begin at the beginning? Actually, um, I, I, gave, I gave kind of your bio, but, but I'd love to hear uh, you know, from you already mentioning centuries and uh, our audience also knows I like to count in centuries often. We have deep West Virginia roots. Can you kind of begin with your own bio, personal bio? How did you, you know, become a scientist and get excited about energy?
0: Sure. Well, speaking of century, my, so part of my family has been in West Virginia or what is today West Virginia for about three centuries, a little over three centuries at this point. And, uh, um, you know, so my my grandfather was an underground coal miner. My father grew up in a, in a coal camp in, in the middle of West Virginia, Carbondale, number nine, uh, long since closed, uh, across the river from Montgomery, West Virginia. Um, I had, have other parts of the family roots in in uh, eastern Kentucky in the coal mines uh, there uh, and grew up in central West Virginia. My father ended up in the oil and gas space, as a matter of fact. And... and uh, my mother was an elementary school teacher and principal. And so growing up, I wanted to kind of combine uh, teaching and and engineering, and I ended up becoming an engineering professor. What do you, what do you know? So, um, but I've been interested in the energy space really all my life. I had a hard hat. uh, 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 You know, this is a breaking some OSHA rules today, but when I was five years old, you know, I was on, on drilling rigs um, with, with my father. And so, I kind of grew up around the energy space. At MIT, I, as a grad student, I had the just amazing opportunity to work in the MIT Energy Lab. My um, uh, main advisor is the director of the Energy Lab, worked closely with Ernie Moniz when he was, when he was there prior to, uh, prior to his second stint in, uh, in the Department of Energy, and just had a great opportunity uh, to move to WVU, found the Energy Institute, and, uh, and then now lead in uh, there was one stop along the way uh, as part of the Energy Institute at the university where a big focus for us was how we put energy together with economic development. And so I uh, started cutting my teeth on economic development in the energy realm uh, back in 2014 under that. And and then again, now it came, ba- came back here with the uh, interagency working group opportunities.
1: Yeah, and uh, can you speak a little bit more to, you've been, Uh, kind of in and out of the public and private sector and institutions um and you work there at the university um there's i i call it a renaissance there's tremendous opportunity for young people but um we've had some other discussion in the at the virginia solar summit about our workforce challenge i don't know if young people it's really clicked in the the size of the opportunity um and the, the length of length and sustainability of the career path can you speak a little bit more to that and then even broadly more broadly than solar stem in general
0: well, absolutely, Dan. I'm, uh, so certainly in, in the solar space, because of the the oncoming continuation of our energy systems transition uh, that is going to happen over the next uh, coming decades uh, is really once in a, it, it, it's once a century uh, sort of effort. Uh, when we go back to the Rural Electrification Act, uh, which is when we rolled out a lot of power lines across the country uh, it is on that order of magnitude of, of changing, transitioning, transforming our energy system over the, over the next few decades into a cleaner, lower carbon uh, energy system. And with that uh, comes a lot of investment, public sector, private sector, uh, and the jobs associated. So everything from deployment of uh, renewables, solar and wind and geothermal and biomass, uh, those, those deployments, as well as uh, deployment of low carbon uh, energy in, in the fossil energy space that we work on at NATL, like carbon capture and sequestration, hydrogen opportunities that uh, when we think of, a lot of people think of the grid as what needs to be decarbonized, but well, the grid is uh, possibly the easier component uh, compared to transportation. Um, if we electrify the fleet, we're going to need more electricity than we use today. And so when we think of the opportunities that are out in front of young people today for a long career path to be right on the edge of that wave of of a major energy transition over the coming decades is is really exciting. And then coming back to the IWG, it's um, per the executive order that the president signed his first week in office of January 27th was the signing of the executive order to tackle the climate crisis domestically and abroad and section 218, don't ask me why I know exactly which sections, uh, is the establishment of the interagency working group. And our, our charge is to make sure that as the energy tra- transition happens, that uh, we are putting the coal and power plants and energy communities that will see um, a major shift in their economies, see a lot of the benefit of that transition. And so it includes deployment of of, uh, renewable assets and then also uh, a strong examination of supply chains that we have in the United States for deploying the future uh, of uh, the future of our grid and the future of our transportation sector so that those communities have uh, have an opportunity as well.
1: Yes supply chain definitely in every the headlines every day uh for a while now. Um, and I think you you really hit on a, a broader point, which is just the cascade. We talk a lot about energy transition, but it really is cascading through the entire economy. And I really hope to light a fire under young people to understand that the future really is as, as bright as we build it. And uh, as a young person, uh, a couple of decades ago, I didn't really know if we'd have the opportunity to have such a smooth Uh, energy transition is potentially laid before us now as a young uh, attorney in the energy space. And Brian, we talked a little bit about this uh, in advance of the show. Uh, I I worked for British Petroleum. Um, We were beyond petroleum at that point. We had changed our name and all this, and and it was the turn of the millennium. And we were very excited about renewables. Then there was a lot of investment then. um, But I was also there when we, we blew up Deepwater Horizon, um, And, you know, people were talking about peak oil at that time too. Um, uh, prices had spiked to one hundred and forty nine dollars and fifty cents intraday. And I still remember some of those numbers. Uh, And, you know, things looked really dicey, let's say 20 years ago, certainly 15 years ago. And you were in the space at the same time as me. Um, Can you reflect maybe on some of that crisis from the early millennium, that mentality and then the incredible transition that we've seen in the decade plus since?
0: absolutely i you know, and I kind of like in the early part of early early part of this century about twenty years ago that um, was the the first attempt at the hydrogen economy um that's back when Steve coonan was the chief scientist at at uh, at bp and and is now a good friend of mine as a matter of fact, in terms of paths crossing and in the beyond petroleum uh, day and age, i was working in the biofuel space i was a uh, uh, working for Cargill, as a matter of fact, as part of my uh, PhD, I took a hiatus of my PhD at MIT, and, uh, and we were working on a biofuels refinery. And, and in, that, in that time, it was, um, uh, there was so much progr- progress made to kick off what has cascaded into the lowering of the costs of, of renewables that we see today. There was a lot of early investment, the early adopters uh, were in there, uh, companies like BP, and many others that uh, were a little ahead of its time. But today, going forward another, another 20 years, there's a, there is a lot, of, a lot more momentum to take those advances and then accelerate and deploy them at, at large scale. And so today, when we, when we look at the, the mix of, of our energy system as a whole, uh, it's still in that uh, the lower end on the supply chains, uh, be it wind, solar, biomass, geothermal, uh, and uh, as we start to deploy farther is where we start to see additional challenges in terms of grid integration, reliability, resiliency, uh, the extra cost for, um, you know, at some point we'll cross over and we need large-scale storage uh, in some places we need it today in, in California and other areas with large, uh, large-scale large deployment of, of the internet, intermittent renewables, and that drives innovation into the future, and so I am going to keep bringing it back to as we need those large-scale investments and we need to start building supply chains in the United States. It's the coal power plants and energy communities that we're working on in the interagency working group uh, who we really want to see workers, the young people in those communities, um, get excited about the opportunities in the future. uh, And and we start seeing the investments made in those communities that have provided the backbone for our energy system for, uh, for a century. To make sure that they're they're uh, diverse economies and and a, have a of revitalization opportunities in front of them.
1: Yeah, and I think uh, they are. Um, they're right in front of us now. It, it's pinch me stuff, like a dream. I often like to joke uh, because we really didn't think there for a while that again we'd have this opportunity. But economics is kind of taking over. You know, these projects are viable now. Um, and more and more technologies, it's really hard to stay on top of some of the news, but we've been pushing, I think we've really reached critical mass and even these larger global supply chain disruptions. um, We we saw it in chips earlier this year, but we had action, swift action from Congress, I think a $50 billion standalone bill to spur more domestic production of silicon wafers and chips here at home. Um, And I know there's a new bill Um, uh, to do similar things on uh, on solar production. Um, And and so those things are really literally like pages, pages away. The private sector is ready to go. The capital is sitting there on Wall Street. I think there's a record amount of of uh, private sector capital just sitting looking for investment uh, on Wall Street right now, a few trillion bucks just just waiting around. So we really do have have a, 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 a delicious recipe if we would we would cook it but we are as i said uh, we've got a lot of projects and you are there now uh you are the executive director of the iwg The, the biden administration's really hit the ground running i've been watching your progress all year it's kind of amazing how quickly you guys have been able to pull so many different things together and i think Uh, can we give you an opportunity now to just kind of zoom in, share some of the specifics, some of the collateral that you guys have put together. You've got some new websites and some new resources and you're doing some other things. So let me see if we can get um, your presentation up for you. Um, I think that's it. Yeah. Dr. Anderson, please uh, take us through your recent work.
0: Well, Dan, and again, th- thank you so much. And and the focus for the interagency working group, and I'll go through some of the details that you highlighted earlier too, is how we can empower workers and empower communities. And so it's it's why it's a whole of government approach and it's a real focus, not from the top down, but truly from the bottom up. And I'm gonna describe our four different workflows for those who haven't, haven't seen it, um, because what we're trying to do is put together uh, the entire landscape of what's on the ground in communities from the assets, that the people, the assets, the physical uh, infrastructure that exists in energy communities around the country, and then with the knowledge of where the energy system is going, how we can put a whole of government approach uh, to, um, uh, to put in the hands the tools that the communities need. So this is not Uh, the uh, one-time dump of, you know, some federal investments. This is get on the ground with communities, plan what an economic revitalization would be for those energy communities and with those energy communities, and then provide the tools necessary um, for it to be a sustainable, and and this is the broad definition of sustainable, uh, sustainable economically, sustainable uh, creating the sustainable communities, where the, uh, the revitalized economy can, uh, can last for decades or centuries to come. And so if we go, go ahead to the next slide then, it's the, um, uh, the setup that I mentioned in terms of the executive order uh, signed on January 27th uh, by, by the president putting these federal agencies together. And, and those, if, if you're looking on a small screen right now, is the Department of Treasury, the Department of Interior Ag, Commerce, Labor, Health and Human Services, Transportation, the Department of Energy, Education, EPA, the Executive Office of the President, and the Appalachian Regional Commission. And and when you think of why these federal agencies were chosen, each and every agency was chosen to be part of this interagency working group because of true equities that exist in energy communities around the country. Uh, some of them are pretty obvious. If we're going through an energy transition, the Department of Energy should be at the table. And I think that's why Secretary Granholm and and the department was asked to help uh, steward the IWG. But certainly, uh, you know, health and human services, education, labor, interior, ag, and, and commerce all have uh, a role to play. And so it's our job on the IWG, the interagency working group side, to make sure that we are bringing to bear the full brunt of the uh, capabilities across all of these agencies. And there are really excited individuals, career federal employees across all of these agencies who are super excited to do this work. And and that's what's, it's really amazing. When uh, uh, we get on to, when we have meetings and we get into um, real work being done by each of these agencies on the ground across these communities that's when it's really exciting is to see uh, how much how much uh, effort is going into this but what we don't want to happen is the burden falling on these communities who you know some of them don't have the capacity uh, to write uh, a single federal grant not nonetheless uh, uh, to 11 different agencies and so it's our job to make their life easier and so If we go ahead to the next slide, and and sorry, you know, I promise not to tap too much into my professor and do a, you know, a lecture. That's not what today is about. Uh, But just really setting the stage, I, I keep using the word communities, and we have multiple layers of communities. Here on the screen are the 25, quote, priority communities that were identified in the initial report. The president said, 60 days, I want to see a report on my desk of how we can Affect change in communities around the country, and show me, the show the president, um, which are the 25 priority communities first for us to go visit, for us to understand uh, the situations they're in, and we'll continue to have more. And so we're working on uh, working on additional analyses to add add communities of, of priority um and to this list but these were based on the percentage of coal employment today and so when we think of the the potential for as we continue down the trend from 52 percent of our electricity being produced from coal uh just a over a decade ago to right around 20 percent of our electricity being produced from coal today going from over you know nearly a couple hundred thousand miners to to 40,000 miners. We're we're seeing a dramatic shift um, in employment in in the coal communities and have already seen that for decades. Uh, Mechanization of the mine uh, resulted in a huge dramatic shift in the amount of employment uh, in in the mine, but that doesn't mean that uh, even today with a closed coal mine that it doesn't dramatically affect the tax base of of a community uh, that funds everything from healthcare to fire stations, to the the local hospital, to uh, the elementary schools. And so uh, as we transition and and, uh, transform the energy economy, we're going to continue to see uh, shifts in in the economies of these existing communities. So we also identified 60 different federal funding authorities across the government uh, that can can be applied to energy communities and $38 billion in existing authorities. These are FY21 authorities, since we are, are, are under a, a CR, uh, that, that we'll, we'll wait to see what the 22 authorities are. But out of that 38 billion that are uh, possibly directed directly to energy communities, that's what we're working on across one of our uh, work streams with, with the federal agencies and in our interagency working group. Because what we're trying to do is make sure the investments, and you can go to the next slide, the investments are, are not just spread like peanut butter. Um, that's the last thing that needs to, needs to happen. You spread, spread it too thin, you spread it like peanut butter, and uh, everybody goes hungry. Uh, but what we're trying to do is identify those communities and the biggest need and make sure that we're coordinating across the government so that um, investments can be um, co-leveraged. From one agency to another to do uh, projects that make a real difference. And when I say making a real difference, it's about catalyzing uh, the investments. Uh, So the federal dollars uh, to go into communities to catalyze the types of investments that then create the uh, competitive advantage for energy communities to attract the private investment as our economy continues to grow, as the energy system transforms and and translates in those private sector investments in the future of our energy system, um, it becomes a no brainer to invest in energy communities. And so uh, that's why, you know, we're really trying to just use, use the federal dollars as a catalyst, not as, as uh, you know, long-term support and create the sustainable communities. And we're really targeting uh, the highest needs. And so uh, just a couple more slides. Uh, uh, here, and, and, and we'll, we'll drop the, the visual aids. But the approach we're taking is across, f- I've mentioned four different work streams. It's starting with stakeholder engagement. Again, we're not going to operate in a vacuum. We didn't, uh, the initial report, we reached out to hundreds of stakeholders uh, to, to hear the voices of people on the ground, folks who have been doing this for years, uh, organizations that have been working on the just transition. And, uh, and so, you know, we didn't want to start from ground zero. And then also, uh, we have been engaged with, you know, at this point, nearly 3000 individuals um, across these 25 priority energy communities around the country, so that we can uh, hear some best practices, understand the needs truly of communities, and and we're listening, we're really listening. So our, our approach is, Uh, to partner with non-federal organizations. We've done webinars, we've done workshops. Um, You can see the geographic, some geographic dispersity, um, and and then leveraging other agencies and other, well, agencies that are partner agencies within the IWG uh, in addition to just our our staffing. And so uh, we've had, you know, these, these particular public events which were targeted toward practitioners who were trying to develop proposals because there wasn't a big, a big announcement from EDA. Uh, proposals are due, due in five days, uh, you know, unfortunately, so this is, you know, we're probably not going to be able to put one together in the next five days, which is why we wanted to hit the ground very hard to make sure that all of the communities uh, are understanding of what the opportunities are out there. So i have talked about stakeholders, uh, the stakeholder investments, or I'm sorry, stakeholder uh, um, engagement, that's one big workflow. The other is in investments, how we can make sure that the investments are catalyzed and targeting. Another workflow is in, in the area of policy. Uh, and that is so that we can integrate um, climate policy with uh, financial policy, with economic development policy. Uh, and so it's all informed. And then the last is integration, and that's how we put together the effort of all of the federal agencies I mentioned earlier and ensure that the communities have some capacity building to be able to apply for the federal funding. But then ultimately, it's our job to make the barrier lower. Um, Not really to lower the barrier, but it's uh, hurdles that, uh, um, you know, honestly, I'll just give you a, a. I'm going to drop the federal hat for a moment and be self critical. You know, it's sometimes pretty hard to do business with the federal government, and our job is to make it easier. And and then just that bluntly, uh, in one of our very first workshops, uh, an important stakeholder voice said, um, I want to challenge you, Dr. Anderson, it was directly to me, to innovate in which the way that the federal government does business, because we in the communities, can't do it your way we don't have the capacity we have this huge you know we're throwing around 38 billion dollars numbers um and uh and so we have big organizations that write really long funding opportunities and uh, uh for a community that uh just it needs some assistance to provide in whether it's infrastructure or education or workforce um or brownfield redevelopment you know, it's often uh, very difficult to write those, those types of proposals. And so we can go on to the, uh, the next one. Uh, the next slide is, is about uh, um, how to get in touch with us. And so in terms of stakeholder engagement, and Dan alluded to it earlier, uh, we had been, uh, we had a, a slightly different website, but we are now energycommunities.gov, uh, is where you can find out all of the events in the past and the future, our reports, As they come out, you can follow us and our activities uh, on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, um, and uh, you can even sign up for uh, getting the updates pushed to your inbox uh, at our website. And this will become a clearinghouse, uh, a one-stop shop for energy communities to be able to reach in and access the the opportunities that exist across all the federal agencies uh, that are part of the IWG again, for us to make sure that we're putting all the tools in the hands of uh, folks in communities who are trying to make a difference. And so Dan, anyway, thanks. And sorry for being a little bit of a PowerPoint, you know, uh, uh, keynote talk, but uh, I really appreciate it.
1: No, we love that, uh, and our audience is used to that. They might miss it if it if it wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> we really love the substance. We're a very smart audience, and we actually follow the breadcrumbs. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll put that information back up. We'll make it available on our website, of course. Uh, we did a, a long form blog on you and the iwg and i think a lot of folks that already found that our our blog is pretty popular if you haven't uh, checked it out please do so there's a lot of other resources on our website virginiasolarsummit.com including site connector where if you if you're getting calls from developer you want to talk to other developers um, you can plug your site your property information in and we'll we'll take it to our community of developers Um, there's there's a lot of phones ringing and a lot of activity um, it's really great. I love to see where you, where you guys are stepping in, especially like on the capacity building, because you're absolutely right. Um, there's we've got a lot of heroes in our uh, communities everywhere, but in our small towns and medium-sized towns, they're lucky if they have a real hero or two who ha- who can suffer the brain damage of applying for a federal grant. You know, the page, pages after pages and and exhibits and, and amendments and attachments, um, but you guys now are setting up really the one-stop shop. You, you, you've, you know who to call. You are the people to reach out to maybe first to help them get started uh, walking down this, this path.
0: That's, exa- that's exactly right. And that, that's the goal is that you know, if, if we have folks who have a great idea about economic redevelopment projects that might touch, uh, there might be a little bit of infrastructure. It looks like transportation. There might be uh, a component that's an innovation in, in the energy space. Uh, and another one that includes uh, some workforce workforce development and education, um, but it's not clear where to go to with that economic development idea in a coal community. Well, come to us, and then we can help find find a right home for those ideas.
1: Yeah, and. Th- um there's a lot of things available and then you mentioned kind of the sprint to get up to speed this year, uh, FY 21, but we have even more coming FY 22. And of course this effort's not going away. It's, it's endurance. So you guys are kind of triaging, getting ready people to go right now, but can you kind of look ahead? Um, we've, we're just settling settling into the Biden administration really. And, uh, so we've got this nice kind of marathon pace. We're sprinting up to a marathon pace and trying to sustain it maybe, but, um, can you speak a little bit about the, the forward look on, on the work?
0: Well, absolutely. And and so you know, certainly on the, you know, much of the debate on the Hill right now are really three big spending packages uh, is right in the middle of this. The uh, the three big ones being the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which uh, i love to spend time. I'm a technocrat and, and love to spend time talking about uh, hydrogen and carbon capture hubs uh, that are in, in the infrastructure bill. Uh, the reconciliation package has... Uh, additional, you know, it's more of the social uh, social infrastructure with clear applications in our energy uh, communities. And then there's the annual annual appropriations as well, and so all of that um, again in terms of looking forward, what we're really going to try to do is simultaneously innovate our way the way that the federal government does business, innovate the way uh, that our energy system goes through the transition. Um, create innovative policies uh, so that uh, while we're simultaneously decarbonizing and moving down the decarbonization pathway that we're simultaneously creating the opportunities in in communities so we don't end up with uh, big gaps in um, economic dislocation. And so right now there's there's just a, a lot of coordination to be done and uh, in, in, in innovating our way through, Uh, this energy transition. And, uh, and so uh, there's, uh, you know, we're part of the national lab system. We're one of the 17 Department of Energy National Labs. And, and as a director of that national lab, I sit on the National Lab Director's Council, the 17 of us get together actually every two weeks, you'd be surprised. Um, And, uh, and we for the last few years, have been looking ahead at their horizon and where we're going in many different spaces. Everything from uh, the future of the energy system, which is an effort that I led across all all the labs uh, with many of my laboratory partners of understanding the energy landscape and the right pathway for the United States to to move forward in in, in the decarbonization pathway, uh, to the future of computing, the future of biotechnology, the future, future of the nuclear deterrent and the future of the accelerator. And so we spend a lot of time and have, you know, some of the world's best scientists on, on our staffs across this lab, national lab system that are all focused on various angles of, of the energy transition pathway. And uh, and so this additional layer of doing it in a manner that doesn't leave communities behind and doesn't exacerbate exacerbate economic dislocation uh, is, is really exciting and one that, uh, you know, I, I again, I, I think that uh, bringing together the IWG was just a tremendous opportunity.
1: Yeah, and so timely uh, and so, so needed um, as the private sector really starts to spin up and, and turn into renewables meaningfully, you know, things like ESG, um, people being very selective on the financial side going forward and it's not just a, a US question, you know, it's a global question now. Um, we have uh, been leading the world in foreign direct investment. People don't know this. It's one of the best kept secrets. You know, America has beat China for, for foreign direct investment for almost a decade now. Um, a lot of European, Asian investors building new facilities, Mercedes-Benz and so on. They want they want green power just because they're Germans. You know, that's <laughs> uh, so there's all, all kinds of reasons kind of pushing us forward. And it really is, I feel um, like that that kind of breakout moment. So I'm curious, you've gone on this listening tour, um, people aren't getting really active, you know, in markets everywhere, there's community, there's heroes rising up in communities. What, what are some of the things that you have heard on the listening tour, um, you know, from communities, from others, both maybe on the positive side, and then some of the hurdles and barriers? Uh, you, you mentioned one earlier, but, but I'm curious to learn, you know, what what it is that you're picking up out there in the world.
0: Yeah. And so the one earlier, I, I is that the capacity uh, is one that just about all the energy communities that we, we've spoken to have in common. And so there are commonalities like that, um, as well as even some barriers to leveraging existing assets. Uh, and so particularly in, in, in the West and some of the um, Department of Interior managed lands, uh, that there are, some, there are some barriers to, when, when uh, say a private sector company uh, finishes up using uh, a coal asset. how then can you keep in mind the uh, the economic opportunities that might come along with reusing those uh, those assets? so uh, I mean just very specifically if you build a railroad into a in into a, a coal facility and when you walk away, you're required by law to rip the railroad up um, maybe isn't the best policy. And so I mean that's that's one one very specific example. Um but uh you know I think that another area uh that has been just an amazingly enlightening are uh you know some of our tribal communities out west again uh, in terms of the uh the dependence that some of our tribes particularly the uh the the Hopi the Crow and the Navajo nations have uh on uh, on the coal that's under their feet. Um, And, in in fact, employment in the Hopi Hopi nation is about 80% of the employment was uh, associated with the coal mine. And so when the coal mine closes, I mean, it's pretty easy to run that number. Um, But there they are sitting on uh, potential great solar assets. But then there are some other challenges in in deploying that, like interconnects, uh, having the right right interconnect, and and even uh, being landlocked. Uh, And so those are some specifics with, uh, and particularly some Western communities, uh, that uh, um, another big overarching lesson that we learn is that really every single community is different in the assets that they have and the vision that they have, which is why we don't, we're not even coming close to a one-size-fits-all approach. Uh, We want to make sure that we're building it from from the ground up. And so when we look at the, the way that we've rolled out the investments, so the way we have so far, um, the EDA announcement, Economic Development Authority announcement uh, under the Build Back Better uh, opportunity, it first is, is planning grants. Um, then there's uh, the economic clusters. And so what we are trying to do again is work the capacity side uh, from the ground up. And then when we start to put together uh, the investments from the from the federal side and big infrastructure investments and and hydrogen hubs and carbon hubs and things like that to where they uh, they layer on um, creating you know creating what in the end is a coherent plan um, as opposed to allowing the agencies to move move forward um, within each of their spaces that is is not as a as um, collaborative as, as it would have been if we weren't around. Um, and, and so that, that goes back to the you know, what we're hearing from, from communities is that um, the federal government needs, needs to be quite a bit more um, thoughtful in the approach to engaging with communities. And then another big one is that, and, and we knew this going in, but it, it was really good to hear. Uh, the folks on the ground the heroes that you've mentioned in in energy communities across the country uh, this is something that they have been many of them have been thinking about and trying to trying to tackle for a, a decade two decades in some cases or more and because of their collective learned experience their experiences over over their attempts uh, you know we, absolutely cannot just bring the same thing to bear that has been brought to bear uh over and over again and so the last thing that we can do is have empty promises that's you know communities have there are many of them that have been burnt you know oh we've heard this before how is it different this time and uh i I think that the biggest thing how it is different this time is we're going to learn from the past and every experience is going to be different is how it's going to be different
1: yeah, absolutely. We, um, I'm fond of saying that we have a lot of brownfielders in the audience uh, and I'm an old brownfielder. brownfields are like a box of chocolates. As Forrest Gump would say, <laughs> you really, you really don't know until you buy it in site by site, you know, yeah. and sometimes by the square foot, some of these, some of these legacy real estate mistakes. Uh, we buried a lot of problems out there. Uh, maybe a million brownfields in the country. Nobody really knows. Um, so we, we, after 300 plus years of industrial revolution, there's plenty of work to do uh, to clean that all up in the Renaissance, but it's so real. Um, it's not, you know, we've had a lot of success. We've been doing a lot of solar on landfills for mm-hmm. certainly the last 10, 11, 12 years. I think we're kind of, I'd like to say it's the end of the beginning. We're really, it's, you know, we're, we're scaling up now. We're getting into the middle innings of the Renaissance um, and, and, You mentioned some of the investments that you're making. Can you uh, be a little bit more specific? What are some of the, you know, right now in the pipeline projects that are coming to life?
0: Well, because uh, (laughs) so right now uh, the the opportunities are are out on the street, and uh, um, with with the funding opportunities closing here here in the next uh, few days, I can't really speak to the the projects that will be funded there. And (laughs) so we have the the suite of of. Uh, funding opportunities that include uh, the mine land reclamation, uh, which that one, that one I could speak to a little bit more that uh, I haven't yet. Uh, similar to brownfields, uh, where here's an environmental legacy uh, that is a liability. Uh, and the historic, the historic uh, mine land reclamation programs didn't always look to a uh, the economic opportunities at the end. And so again, that's what we're trying to, we're trying to change the the end state of where reclamation goes uh, to find those opportunities uh, so those are those are the projects and sorry I can't speak uh, specifically because you know the again we haven't yet created all the innovations on the federal government side uh, that uh, we hope to because the way we do business on the federal side is we send out the funding opportunity announcements or uh, notice of funding opportunities and nofo if you're Uh, if you follow that and, uh, and then we have to receive the proposals and, and, uh, evaluate them on merit. So some, just to give the listeners a a little bit of a heads up, because some of the policy, um, innovations that we're working on is how we, how we select projects, uh, how we score them and create, uh, uh, you know, the merit scoring associated with, uh, a project being in a coal and power plant community. So those are some of the other scoring factors that we're putting in place.
1: Yeah, that's uh, the sausage making that really makes a difference. Um, DOE does it, a lot. Of, you know, there's a lot of grants. And then on the EPA side too, we have EPA Brownfield grants. That season's also spinning up, it's kind of grant season. Um, I'd like to give a shout out to our friends at the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality's Brownfield program, Mr. Vince Maiden, Mr. Mead Anderson. They're very busy right now. They will also take your calls and questions if you need help uh, accessing those uh, They can help you with your e- the EPA Brownfield grant, but there's also state funding. And then the former division of Mines, Minerals, and Energy is now Virginia Energy, and they have their own grants, um, including a new program um, for mine land reclamation and redevelopment that uh, hasn't been funded yet. But uh, we have a lot of good folks in government, in, in our public institutions who are, who are kind of standing by and ready to help people navigate um, both kind of the project lifecycle, but the, the public sector side of that of that capital stack. Can we go back a little bit more and talk about, maybe zoom up a level and talk about, the, you know, you mentioned many times you know, how the public sector can kind of get itself together, attract that private investment. Um, but as we have a lot of funds, the, that public sector capital stack is taller maybe than it's been in Uh, Many recent administrations, thanks to President Biden and and the Congress, who have loosened the purse strings a little bit. It matches that wall of private money that I mentioned earlier. But specifically, how are we going to help communities out there set the table for private investment?
0: I think that this this is where when when I say a a whole of government approach, uh, it's not just federal government. And you you brought up, uh, you know, particularly in the state of Virginia and DMME, had a series of uh, listening sessions earlier this year. I see Michael Skiftington on, here on the on the call as well, and and I was really happy to participate in those. And the Virginia Legislature was driving, you know, uh, this uh, uh, asking DMME to put together the uh, a report on the energy transition for tra- for energy communities in across Virginia. The state of West Virginia has put together a uh, can't call it a, a, a task force, but a, a working group. Uh, in the legislature uh, to do do just that. And they're doing listening tours, I think, you know, next week and and across the state over the next few weeks. Um, And so it's at the federal level, partnership at the state level, then uh, into communities um, at the, you know, whether it's at the county level and and even the the city or community level um, to make sure that we're all communicating so that there's, you know, it, it's not necessarily a trickle down, but there is, uh, on the federal side, a oftentimes a requirement for a cost share. And so there's an opportunity for states to help. Uh, that's one thing that the, I know the state of West Virginia and their legislature is exploring is a way that they can have uh, some cost share opportunities, again, to, uh, to access and leverage and, and really accelerate their investments in, into communities. And then um, it's standing up those uh, NGOs that are across the across the country, across our region, and, and in those uh, communities that are um, that are seeing it firsthand, that are seeing the opportunities, the assets, and uh, the direction that uh, that our energy communities want to go. See it firsthand. And so one of the one of the areas, and you know, I hate to keep coming back to capacity building, but that's where we are today, uh, is to make sure that, you know, the ones the the one stop shops that exist in communities across the country, um, are not just mom and pop one person shops, but they have the assets to, to assist um, uh, and create uh, create the economic revitalization. And so there are, there are ways that across the networks of, of these organizations and bringing together everything from the private sector to philanthropy uh, that, that I haven't really touched on. Um, and putting all of those assets together uh, is, one, a challenge, but it's our job to help um, catalyze those, uh, um, the building of those networks and communities around the country.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love the cross silo approach. It's, it's what we need. It's really, it's all hands on decks. It's every hero, every hero and champion to the call who will answer the call, you know, step up. Uh, and I, I just love the kitchen sink approach, or the, the all all government. It's it's really uh, it's it's timely, it's needed and necessary. And you're going to fill a lot of the cracks, not just in the capital stack, but in the in the capacity side. It's a real issue. We have work, a workforce challenge literally in every field right now. No one has enough people. We have a human capital problem. Uh, so we really have to do more with less brain power. And that's that's not where I'd like to be. But it's I guess it's a good problem to have. Uh, if we had more people, we could do more work. <laughs> that's that's really, really the good news. Uh, so can we talk, dive in a little bit more on the war chest? And if you guys have doctor uh, questions for Dr. Anderson, feel free to start dropping them in the chat. I want to, I want to turn to some of those, um, but you've got the 30. Go ahead, Dr. Anderson. Well, I just Dr. noticed there
0: was, there was one question in, in, the, in the chat about storage sure. and, uh, and I'll give a shout out to the Department of Energy on this. The first um, earth shot out of the Department of Energy was the hydrogen shot. And that uh, was targeting $1 per kilogram of hydrogen uh, in a decade. Um, and uh, the second Earth shot was the storage shot, and and uh, so the question was how big does uh, energy storage or storage play uh, in the federal plan? And this is it's a huge part uh, of what is needed to build out into the into the future is uh, grid scale storage. And I even got involved in grid scale storage early early on uh, when RPE was first stood up uh, in the Department of Energy. Uh, one of the very first uh, programs in RPE was in grid scale storage, and it is still a critical need for us.
1: Yeah, uh, I sometimes I you know say my prayers for storage at night because we're a hop, skip, and a jump away to uh, some kind of Jetsons economy, I think.
0: <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, again, I'll give a shout out to the state of Virginia here. In that, uh, you know, one of the larger uh, grid scale storage assets on the East Coast is is a pumped hydro in the state of in in Virginia. And so there are there are opportunities, again, uh, when one thinks of uh, what investments need to happen as we uh, transform our energy economy, there are opportunities that abound uh, across our coal, energy, and power plant communities uh, in this region and across the country. And so we want to make sure that, that folks are aware of those opportunities and, and bring the private sector to the table and make sure that uh, the public-private partnerships are built so that we make the right types of investments to uh, to brownfields to uh, mine reclamation spaces, so that uh, those communities become attractive to the private sector.
1: Absolutely. Can you talk? Can we uh, be a little bit more specific and talk through the plan? Like how you t- that thir- first thirty-two billion. Um, you got your thinking outside the box, you're looking for champions. I know you can't talk specifically about the funding opportunities, but maybe by category or however you'd like to describe, like what are the kinds of things that, that you are looking for um, to, to, to both fund and to facilitate and catalyze?
0: Yeah, so uh, we do have a, you know, some very specific uh, targets, deadlines and milestones that have, have been set out in, in the executive order. Um, in the very near term, we, we have uh, uh, some policy recommendation documents of how to uh, how to coordinate policy across the agencies uh, as due back to the White House. Um, that's in, in the executive order. Uh, looking out at the, the year timeframe, we have a, uh, a real plan on how we achieve integration on the federal side that unlike has been achieved before. There was a lot of effort uh, a number of years ago on the federal side to do um, uh, strike forces uh, specific in creating these cross-cutting efforts, uh, and so we're building off of that. Um, but but certainly, uh, we have really a, a three-phase plan on on integration, and and it starts with uh, it started with the launching of EnergyCommunities.gov um, being the um, the clearinghouse. Uh, the next step is to make sure that all the different opportunities that are out for energy communities are there that uh, one one can find. Uh, then it's uh, uh, making sure that all all the resources are in that one place. And as we roll through, if um, folks follow the the way that the budget sausage is made in in, in DC, uh, the president the president will request a budget early in the spring. And so we're working with the Office of Management and Budget out of the out of the White House and the agencies on the formulation of the 2023 budget request, and that formulation will include lots of sinews across across the agencies, um, again, to create the coordination. But as that rolls forward in the years to come, it becomes more and more integrated. The program becomes more and more integrated across those agencies. Uh, and, and, and in a phase two and phase three of that clearinghouse integration piece uh, is how um, you know how to, again, come up with the funding opportunities that are much more flexible to access multiple agencies, multiple types of money for the communities. Um, you know, a holy grail would be a, a, a single application. Hey, I'm an energy community, and I've got an economic revitalization project. I'm not sure what agency it is, but here's my proposal. And then it's our job to find the, find the money uh, if it's meritorious. That's a holy grail, but you know, and so we'll we'll continue to work toward that. Um, and then when it comes to stakeholder engagement, we've uh, we did a, a series of workshops. We have now we're rolling out some other geographically based workshops. We're going to do one in Kentucky. We've got one coming up in Wyoming now, uh, as well, and uh, and then a series of national workshops that are topical, uh, topical based on uh, funding opportunities and. Uh, Things like, you know, either uh, cross-cutting agriculture, cross-cutting workforce, things like that. Uh, uh, So simultaneously working on both sides of that matrix and the stakeholder engagement piece. I think I've covered a bit of the policy integration, investments, and and stakeholder engagement uh, near and, and medium term plans there.
1: Yeah, it's a tremendous effort. Um, it's it's almost impossible to, to comprehend, but uh, but it's happening, and uh, it's so great to see everybody kind of leaning in all at once uh, in in Virginia, Greater Virginia. We see even the, the private sector. The way Dominion Dominion Energy has leaned all the way in. Um, it's it's amazing what is possible when everybody starts push, pushing in the same direction. Um, and it's coming very naturally now that we've, the te- the technology, the innovation has pushed the economic viability of these projects to a point where, um, it, you know, our, our natural kind of instincts are, are taking over and, and investors are pulling from the top. And, uh, and that's how we build a Renaissance. I think we've got one, one last question about the Selena layers in Northern West Virginia, relating to hydrogen storage versus methane storage.
0: Dan, Dan must've known that I, uh, uh, it spent some time funding a project mapping all the saline, all the salts formations uh, across <laughs> Appalachia, and so um, you know very specifically it's uh, for methane methane storage. Uh, when it comes to its really seasonal flow, we pump it in the summer and we pump it out in the winter. Um, if we get to a, a very dynamic grid uh, where we need to do load following using, say, a hydrogen turbine, um, shout out to NETL, We we worked with GE on the development of the hydrogen turbine the HA turbine. But uh, if we're doing load following using hydrogen, we need to be able to pump hydrogen in and out much faster uh, than we do methane. And so the salt formations, uh, deep salt formations, it can be salt solution mine that are you build a cavern versus building a porous media is a great opportunity for uh, storage of hydrogen. That, that's the type of storage that you would uh, need for, for load following. So good question, Dan. Appreciate that. Yeah, knowing you can, knowing you can handle the
1: fastball there. Uh, well done, and, and thanks for for all the work that you've done. Um, you know, it's been a, an accomplished career. You got started early. Uh, I, t- I tip my cap. We need, we need a lot more folks uh, such as yourself to help us push to this highest and best renaissance. So kind of my last question for you, and then we'll turn it back and, and, and go out uh, on a strong note. But look, can you look to the future a little bit? You know, somebody might be watching this in 20 or 30 years. Um, we, you, you've done a lot so far in the last couple of decades. What do the next couple decades hold? And, and what should young people be looking to expect?
0: But well, if I really go out, go out on the limb, and I think we're, we're gonna end up with a lot more micro micromanufacturing, uh, everything from 3D printing to advanced manufacturing. Um, and so what I envision is you know, manufacturing supply chains just become uh, completely more innovative and, and small scale across the country, everything from the way that we build, uh, build cars uh, and, uh, and our goods. And so these are in people's garages and, and in communities across the country and our energy system looks the same. It's a distributed energy system. We have lots of wind and solar. We have carbon capture and sequestration uh, for a big part of the baseload on natural gas, and we have uh, hydrogen infrastructure build out. I think I think we're going to see some tremendous changes in the next thirty years.
1: I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm getting excited about space. Um, and a lot of other innovation. I think there's a lot of growth in the forecast. And I talked to my friends in Washington, I keep talking about a a much bigger pie around the corner um, and and so much more, much more equitable, equitably distributed. I I like what you said about micro manufacturing, 3d printing. Um, Now, if you've, if you hit the books, your future is bright. You, you're going to be able to make something, do something, create something. You know, it's already happened. We've seen uh, the way innovation has powered the individual. But I want to come back, uh, Dr. Anderson, and let you hit these very important calls to action as we uh, close out the show.
0: Thank you. And, and and Dan, thanks for giving me a chance to, to call everyone here to action. Those of you on the live stream, those of you here in Zoom with us, um, please do sign up. Uh, for uh, the stakeholder engagement opportunities, we want to hear each and every voice on this topic. Um, we are we are wanting to find the the right solutions to all the all the challenges that exist in communities. Uh, there are opportunities to build some coalitions. I mentioned matching funds, uh, state, private sector, philanthropy. Um, we really want all hands on deck uh, here, and please again provide some input uh, on our priority work streams I went through them uh, but how can we target the federal investments? What does capacity building really look like in a community and what should we be doing on the federal side to create that one-stop shop? And we want to hear uh, if we're not hearing from stakeholders uh, that we don't know about, well please let us know. Uh, raise your hand and, and reach out to us uh, and so you can you can follow us at uh, energycommunities.gov and we really we really want to hear from you. And, and engage in deep, long-lasting conversations. Dan, thank you.
1: Thank you, Dr. Anderson, and uh, everyone at the interagency working group, uh, as well as the Biden administration, for tasking this uh, incredible effort. I, I know what a challenge it is to lean across 12 federal silos, uh, but you're up to the challenge. We thank you. I also had the opportunity to interact with some of the tremendous people behind uh, Dr. Anderson, they're all great. I, I encourage everyone uh, listening now or later to to reach out to them, you know, with their help, uh, with, the, with your questions for their help. They have guidance. They have resources. They're putting together new analytics. So stay tuned. Energycommunities.gov. Um, the work has just begun. And I just want to go out by Highlighting our special guest on the next episode of the Virginia Solar Summit live stream will be Ms. Tate McDonald, a partner at Holland and Knight. She's done a lot of work with DOE and DOD. Uh, We're gonna think big. We're going to talk about the future, where the market's going. We're gonna talk about some of the supply chain issues and get into some of the headlines. So I hope everyone can plug in. October 28th at 11 a.m. Eastern, Ms. Tate McDonald and myself thinking big about the future. Thank you again, Dr. Anderson. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in live. And you can find us on YouTube and all the podcast channels. Keep up the good work. You've been listening to the Virginia Solar Summit live stream and podcast brought to you by Dominion Energy and Mission Disposal. Thanks again to our special guest, Dr. Brian Anderson from the IWG. Check out all their work and stay plugged in at energycommunities.gov. Plug into the Renaissance on our website, virginiasolarsummit.com. And remember, the future's as bright as we build it.
0: quality Base here. The Eagle has landed.